0: Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long term wealth, while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I use to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. Today, I'm talking with Ron Lynch. From the aisles of a grocery store to the glamour of Hollywood, Ron's journey as an actor, writer, and storyteller is nothing short of extraordinary. In today's episode, we explore the concept of identity within the blockchain and how Ron is making sure we can manage our assets on decentralized platforms without compromising privacy and security. We also discuss the challenges and opportunities of moving away from centralized, government-run blockchains and the barriers that hold businesses back from reaching greater heights. In this episode, you'll learn the greatest threats to your identity and security in the blockchain space and Ron's game plan for tackling them, the one big mistake companies make when trying to scale, and Ron's wild ride from a grocery store worker to a Hollywood actor and writer and ultimately a multimillionaire infomercial mogul. One more thing before we get to today's interview. Ron's got something special for lifestyle investor podcast listeners. He's sharing his Manifesto of a Modern Millennium, which is a live reading of his 10-chapter book. In this audio book, Ron discusses his thoughts and ideas around the political status of the US and his vision for how our country can endure through the challenges we currently face. To get access to this gift, visit lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash 157. Thanks for listening, and without further delay, my conversation with Ron Lynch. What's up, Ron? So good to have you on the
1: show. Thank you. Good to be here. Appreciate it.
0: Hey, this is a lot of fun. I really enjoy having my friends on the show, and you're a wealth of knowledge in so many different areas. And I'm excited to tap into this knowledge and these skills that you've developed and acquired over the years. But even beyond that, I just love hanging out and I always learn a ton whenever we're together. So thank you again.
1: That's a two-way street. I appreciate that. So cool.
0: So what's going on in your world right now? It sounds like you're, you are you kind of have at least one cool project that you're working on. Would love to hear about it.
1: Yeah, we've got a bunch of things that we're doing in the tech space and the identity space and related to TeleHelp. But kind of the favorite thing that I'm working on at the moment is a little bit, I guess it's a little political. I'm working with Jeff Hayes on a documentary about the life of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. That book was written by Dick Russell a couple years ago, year and a half ago. and Since then, the writing of it, you know, Bobby's announced that he's going to run for president. And this isn't a political piece. It's more of a historical piece of who the man is. And I found that to be super interesting. He's been in the crosshairs of a lot of media the last couple of years. And so to get kind of the backstory and his version of reality, you can imagine it's probably not the same as CNN's.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it's fascinating. And by the way, Jeff Hayes is incredible, puts together some awesome content, some great documentaries and docu-series. I've been featured on one of his films and really enjoyed being interviewed by him and and learning from him. So he's a wealth of knowledge and he's just a really fun guy.
1: Yeah, he's a superhuman being and very grounded in ethics and reality and uh, exposing what's actually going on and giving you the information and letting you pick up your make sense out of it yourself.
0: That's cool. And what about some of this technology that you're kind of excited about or geeking out about?
1: Well, we put together a a pretty substantial patent for a product called it's going to be called Nifty Lock initially, which is an NFT identity lock, where I think everyone's concerned about human chipping and human identity and what we do on Web 3.0. As you know, there's a great drive at the moment to go to a federalized coin and a federalized dollar that's in a blockchain environment. And I think that most people don't recognize why that's being done. And I think that there's a very un- a big unspoken why. And for me, that is the dollar used to be strapped to gold. And in 1972, went off the gold standard. And we really went to a petrol dollar that was backed in debt. So our mortgages, our car loans, company loans, that was the backbone of our banking system was all of this debt. Well, now so much money has been printed and the debt, uh, the national debt has increased so much. There's not enough real world assets backing up this existing debt that's going to get passed on to our kids and our grandkids. So from a banker's perspective, they need to get inflation under, under control and global banking under control, something to back those assets with. And here is the kind of the dark underbelly, I think, of this digital currency, is when you run out of people's debt to secure things with, the next logical place to go would be their wholly owned assets. And centralized banking with digital currency allows for banking and government reach into your existing assets. Because if you're on a digital dollar and you wanna sell something you own, say you have a wholly owned vehicle or a piece of art or a house, you have to register that then on that blockchain in order to do the transaction. So once people figure that out, and again, I say this is the part that's unspoken, there'll be a gold rush for everybody to sign up their assets to this blockchain to prove that they own it so other people don't steal and lift your assets. Well, suddenly you've got a whole population of wholly honed assets, which is the trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars that are now hooked up as the base of your your foundational currency, which means ultimately, as life gets more expensive and there's less employees and there's more social programs and more debt, your own possessions and ownership will be reverse mortgaged into that system. And eventually... And eventually the state ends up with it. So we're creating an identity protection tool that allows you to log your stuff, but do it anonymously where you still hold it and then create avatars for yourself. So you can go online as Justin D and nobody knows who Justin D is and interact in a blockchain environment under anonymity.
0: Yeah, I love that. There's no doubt that we're heading to a world where blockchain is going to categorize or uh, memorialize who owns what assets. Like that's a a given, it's a done deal. But the more centralized things are, it makes it a lot easier to intercept. It makes it a lot easier to put your hand in that honey jar and have access. And so this is the big push for DeFi, right? Decentralized finance. And it's the same thing here on decentralizing the blockchain. And and it's part of the reason why Bitcoin is so popular is because that is a decentralized ledger where you don't have anyone that can fully own it and operate it and take control.
1: Yeah. And I would say systematically, if we can correct this piece of identity and who owns it, there are some upsides. If you wanted to, say, get a home equity loan, you wouldn't apply to a bank. You'd apply to the system and you'd actually take Actual equity out of your actual home and pay it back without going through all of the the hoops. Filing your taxes theoretically should be much simpler. Um, it should simplify some things in the world, but we want to add security and your identity and ownership to that process, which the state doesn't care too much about. I mean, you can remember in, during the pandemic there was an awful lot of people that got money injected into their bank accounts that they didn't ask for it. I didn't ask for that money. But the fact that the plumbing is now hooked up between the state and my personal bank account gives me pause because that's two-way plumbing. That makes sense.
0: Makes a lot of sense. And and we're entering in into really like an economy where privacy is not being respected the way that it has in the past. I mean, and a lot of people are even kind of falling under this guise of, well, why do we even need privacy? Like, if you have nothing to hide, then don't hide it. And I feel like that's a really slippery slope and a really dangerous way of looking at things because privacy is important. And to be able to share things in a community of, of folks that is really intended for just that community, I think is really important.
1: Yeah, I think that the premise of if you have nothing to hide is a false premise. Everybody has things to hide. and We, ha- we all have our privacy. And frankly, it's either, either with our pride, things that we're proud of that we don't really want public or things that we have shame for that we don't really want public. But once upon a time, you could write a document on your typewriter and put it in a folder and go to the store with cash and buy some things and come home. The contents of that document were yours, and they were private. The contents of what you bought at the store were anonymously purchased with cash; nobody knew who bought them. But in this day and age, everything you type in your computer is suddenly the property of Google or whoever you, Microsoft or whoever you you've entered into a terms of service with. And then, where does that stop? With your phone calls, with because that's cellular data coming across your thoughts? Where At what point do you have privacy and ownership? And at what point does that go away to somebody else? So I'm very concerned about those things for myself, for my kids, for my grandkids, just for humanity. This We should have privacy and we should have private ownership.
0: Well, and what happens with, I mean, th- th- there's a big push for big tech and big data to be capturing this information, all these things that, you know, people want to keep private. I mean, there's a lot of things I want to keep private, such as like, my social security number, EINs that I might have, or trusts, or whatever the you know the various other things that exist, birth certificate information,
1: uh, your search history. I don't care what it is. It's yours. Like like I say, if you typed it into your keyboard. I don't think that makes it somebody else's. I don't think that means it belongs to Google or the government or anybody else. I think what you type in your keyboard is no different than uh, what, a note you take to yourself or a private conversation with you and your spouse. It's yours. You are the originator of that. And I suppose to some degree, essentially, what do you have to copyright everything that you do and say, oh, this and that might be how we get there is we may incorporate copyright laws into privacy of data
0: and copyright using the blockchain. You know, it's, it's interesting when I think about just what is happening in a centralized system where like even look at, you know, the California DMV, where they decided to centralize and store data. They weren't even supposed to be storing a lot of the data that they were storing. And then they got hacked and all that information ended up on the black market and being sold. And people that shouldn't have that information now have it. And so, you know, sometimes good intentions have negative consequences. And I think anytime you have a a central place to go, that where you're storing data, and it's, you know, a government system, a government agency that isn't equipped to properly do
1: it, you're going to be in trouble. Well, and to further that, all it takes is for one for you to irritate one bureaucrat who has access to the other end. And you could silently if someone had power, they could silently silence you, like stop your funds or what, whatever. Like you can be unplugged from the other end. And we all know what it's like to get even to get customer service at Facebook, right? Like you, you could be on the, like the airlines, you're on the endless call, and there's no person at the other end who even cares about your plight. And unjustly, that gives power to people that it takes power away from the individual.
0: Yeah, there's no doubt. You know, it's interesting talking about all this because this isn't where I think you had your start, but it's where you have, I mean, it's where your heart is. It's where you're uh, excited about today. But do you love the podcast and the book and wonder what the next steps should be on your lifestyle investor journey? For a limited time, my team is doing free personalized consultation calls to learn more about your goals and determine which of our courses or masterminds will help you get to the next level. Whether that's to make your first investment or to create your first income stream of passive income, or whether that's to achieve ultimate financial freedom. If you'd like to reserve a spot, Head over to lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash consultation to book a free strategy session while they're still available. Again, that's lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash consultation. I mean, you got started in the online space. You're an OG in, in that community. You're big time in info marketing and, you know, being on some of the, uh, the those shows where you're selling online or on TV, infomercials and such. And and I'd love to go back and just kind of hear about your story and how you got to where you are today. You're you're a highly successful entrepreneur, but you're out of the system and I'd love to talk about that a little bit because You also, you know, you don't owe anyone anything like you don't have any debt. You've figured out how to live a life where no one has any claws in you. And so I definitely want to talk about that today.
1: Sure, sure. I'd be happy to share that. It It was a long road getting here, but I probably wanted to be here when I was 10 years old. Um, in a lot of, a lot of ways this like I, I got to live my my childhood dream in many ways at 57 years old I'll still get on my long skateboard and skateboard down to the mailbox down the road and pick up my mail and come back
0: I love it doesn't surprise me
1: my inner 10 year old's quite happy with that as a kid I was a pretty good student I grew up in a family where uh, academics were really important to my parents and so there was a lot of monitoring of schoolwork and what have you and you know I was the kind of kid that I got five A's and a B, I'd hear about the B. We wouldn't talk about the five A's. So there was a lot of that kind of pressure. And I excelled in it. I I went to school. I did well in school. I ended up at University of Washington. And I was on my way, I thought, to go to law school. I had childhood dreams of being an actor. I'd done some theater in school. And I had a day job for while I was in college, working at a grocery store. And One of my compatriots at the store got an audition to be in a film that Robert Altman was directing. And he said, hey, do you want to go crash the audition? And I did. And I ended up uh, at about 20 years old getting a role in this movie.
0: That's awesome.
1: Jeff Daniels and Peter Gallagher and Eric Bogosian, directed by Robert Altman, who had directed MASH and Nashville and The Player. And he was like a big time Hollywood director, protege of Hitchcock's. And so I got a SAG card and I ended up doing that in a series of movies after that because I lived in Seattle and there weren't a lot of young people with SAG cards, union cards. And so in that process, I always stayed on and I learned how films were made. So I'd work for two, three days as an actor, but then I'd stay on for 30 days as a production assistant and bring coffee to people and sweep floors, but stay on set and watch how the films were made. Then I was on a film with – I did a one-day gig with – jeff bridges and edward furlong the kid that was in the terminator and jeff jeff bridges the dude i'm standing next to him now this is not long after star man and he's this gorgeous hollywood movie star and i just walked up to him and i said jeff how do i get to be from being in my shoes as this two-bit actor to being a movie star i would love to and he said it's super easy make sure your dad is lloyd bridges fair enough he said that's what me and my brother bo did and i'm like okay fair enough so he said right if you can start writing if you can write movies or television you'll always have a job and i was i didn't fancy myself a writer that was that was almost as about as logical as saying hey become a dentist as far as i was concerned because it is pulling teeth for me to write at least it was then so i sat down took his advice and that's one of the things i tend to do is i tend to take And rapidly implement the advice of people who are qualified in front of me in life. So I did and I wrote a couple movies and I went back to my job at the the grocery store and I was still kind of doing this life. And I had a customer in the grocery store who I knew was on television in Seattle. I asked her if uh, she knew anybody in Hollywood. I'd written some screenplays. She said, yes, bring in the screenplays. So a couple of weeks later, I brought these screenplays in a plastic bag, left them in my check stand. She came in, I saw her and she said, how did you know how to ask me? And I said, I don't know. What, what do you mean? She goes, well, my sister's Kathleen Kennedy. I said, I don't know who that is. This was 1990. She said, well, she's the head of Lucasfilm. I mean, she's the head of Spielberg's production company, Amblin. And sure enough, her sister was Kathleen Kennedy. So these got shipped off to her. I got a call from Kathleen Kennedy a couple weeks later and really validated my ability to write movies and different voices. And I told her, she asked me how I did it. I told her, like, I don't really write the movie. I have an idea for what a movie is. And then I see it up here, like I visually see it in the movie screen. And I take dictation as fast as I can. And I'm surprised all the time by the content. She said, that's how the great ones do it. And I took that compliment and did nothing with it except thanked her continued in my grocery career for another 12 years and worked my way up to operational director without having a movie career and decided to make a short film went on holiday to tell to the film festival ran into kathleen kennedy while i was there she remembered me we started this conversation on the street with her and her husband frank marshall and another filmmaker keith gordon and I went, "I really want to do this three days later, I was let go from my grocery job five days later, wow. I was in the infomercial business, and I had sold a movie uh, the rights to a movie to Sam Perlmutter, who is George foreman's agent so
0: oh my goodness,
1: three days later was nine eleven that all just like the whole my whole world changed the week of nine eleven I had three kids at the time still do, and so I was one week, I was the director of operations for a grocery company two with three kids. Two weeks later, I was the creative director of an ad agency, and I had no idea that that was going to happen the moment it happened. It just changed. So since then, I've been writing, directing, and producing infomercials, commercials, p- political speeches, films documentaries, been writing books. Generally, I have not turned the writer off. Just every day, I'm producing content for something. So business strategy, all kinds
0: of stuff. Well, here's an interesting question for you. I mean, your skill set is incredible, and I, I love that. I'm curious what you think. You know, we've got a writer strike going on right now in Hollywood. You've got a lot of people that are wondering if, you know, who, who's going to hold out longer, who, you know, what does this look like? And then you have this contingent of people that really think AI can replace these writers based on the quality of AI today. I know that you're probably never or probably never going to replace your top tier of writers and the creativity that they have, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on on what you think about AI as using it to support writing or support different parts of, of movie and film production.
1: Well, I think that there will always be a place for AI content, which is weird. I think you probably were expecting me to say there'll always be a place for humans. There'll always be a place for AI content, which I think will be the more, I'll say, bubblegum generic, sophomoric type content. There will always be an audience for brilliant writing, writers, directors, producers. Part of the reason for, that I say that is because quality creative relies on irrationality. You start with a writer, and a good writer doesn't say what happens next. A good writer says, what absolutely positively couldn't possibly happen next, write that. So a great plot is consistent. That's why we watch movies, is what shouldn't happen happens so that's not rationality it's irrationality that's what creativity is is this development of irrationality where i tend to look at artificial intelligence as the distillation of rationality so this value of irrationality but the thing that you write as a writer is not what happens when you go to film i if i write a movie yeah i have this picture in my head of what it is but then i meet the art director who is one of my most important people and they're helping me with set design and costume design and how the props and how things look well that's not in the movie that i wrote this is all their creation how they've interpreted it then there's the lighting director and the director of photography and then the editor so there's all these other layers of irrationality added to the job so i think that it's kind of like would we no longer have painters because AI can instantly paint something. I don't think that's going to stop people from painting. And I think that the great paintings just come from human beings and people will be tend to discount AI art as product commoditized, no soul that, that, that we're I gonna that. we're gonna be able to separate like I'll give you an, an instance where we kind of have that in high quality textiles, in flatware and dishes and things in our house. What wealthy people tend to have are these handmade, rare, high-touch products. And the rest of us have stuff from Ikea that was stamped out of a machine. And you go, which would you rather have that there's an aspiration to have the artisan quality? And I think that will always exist in everything.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So. I'd love for you to share some of your stats and, and some of the cool like records that you had and and like your time with infomercials was just, it was substantial. I mean, you had this meteoric rise and uh, just, you know, did things in that space that no one was doing at that time.
1: I don't know. I had really good teachers. So I don't know if I could go as far as say I'm doing what, what other people weren't really doing, but. I started out learning, first of all, and I had, again, I had great teachers. So my first couple of infomercials worked well, probably primarily because I came from a grocery industry. I loved cooking and we had these demonstration cooking kiosks in the store. So I knew how to do a cooking demonstration and I understood food pretty well. So my first shows were around food processors, knives, um, bakeware. And so I, I got a lot of success easily doing something i could have done in my own home right i've learned the fair pitch process in the process but i I was excited i think that there's people that wait their whole lives to try and do something and they don't have uh, a quick start out of the gate but my very first infomercial for a food processor did something like 80 million dollars in the first six months
0: that's unbelievable
1: and you know it's hard for me to kind of look now at vsls because people are so you know in the infomercial or in internet industry so focused on vsls to me a vsl is a kind of a version of an infomercial and most of the ones i see are pretty terrible and i see a lot of effort in companies to do that relatively poorly with good results which is great but i often go if you took that effort you could actually do this on television and make a literal brand out of yourself where you're just missing so much money because you frankly are afraid of it. And you have an upper limiting issue and you don't know how to do it. You think it's a mystery. If you come to me, I'll teach you how not to, how to do it. And it's not a mystery and It becomes super easy. So that was kind of an early excitement of, to do that. And then I moved into tools and hardware, which taught me a different style of work, cooking and cooking appliances Are very female focused and so very, you can be kind of loose with those shows because women have a psychological ability to reorder anything. They they can take the parts and pieces. Men are much more Pythagorean. We need an ABC process. So then, as I moved over to tool shows, I brought that idea of ABC with me and I abandoned kind of the gatherers mentality and really started to do shows both in fitness and in in tools that were a very abc process and we were able to score hundred million dollar hits right away in tools so i had done probably three or four shows i did one of kevin harrington's bigger shows flavor wave deluxe oven and these were i'd say they're going about a hundred million dollars a show and those are that's annual revenue so my first couple of years i was doing a hundred million dollars a show six or seven that's shows. incredible
0: that's so much
1: It seems like so much, but it's TV. You're everywhere, right? And we only had 35 TV stations at the time. We didn't have the 400 we have now. So I did that. Then I went to a consumer goods company, one of my clients, and I worked there for five years and I helped select products. So then I got to go to the front end and figure out what would be a hit and what would be a miss through the selection process. And mind you, after I did that first string of hits, I had a, a run where I had three or four shows that failed like we didn't sell a thing so the pats that i had been giving myself on the back for being so talented and gifted and my peers were now kind of like hey well you're in a slump buddy and i realized i was good at making shows but i wasn't i had been handed wonderful products by clients and then i went through this period of well i guess i can do this with anything no i'd learned okay there's not just you, you have to pick the product right. So I had the slump, then it came back. And then we were picking hit products again, based on some core elements of what make a success. And so I had to come up with a criteria for that.
0: It's fascinating, by the way, because being a merchant is like a total skill. I remember talking to David Green, founder of Hobby Lobby about this. And he's like. Yeah, I may be an entrepreneur, but I'm really not. I'm really more of a merchant. Like my heart is being a merchant and merchandiser and finding the things that people want, knowing the quantity, knowing the colors, knowing all the little details. And it sounds like that's what you have, like that you have this gift to know, A,
1: what it is that people are gonna want, and then B, how to sell it. Being able to look ahead into the customer's position and go, I really want that myself. Or bringing home to my wife, I think I want this. Do you want this? And she'd say yes or no. Nobody wants that. They're like she helps me a lot with those those product decisions. So that's maven work, kind of. And I think that's what you're talking about with a guy from Hobby Lobby is how to be, how to have that eye. So I just say there's certainly you know that's a producer's mindset for sure. I have I would have that. I think I'm not always right, but I try to be. Outside of the the selection, then is knowing that pitch, and I think that that's one of the things that. I'm good at, and that's I help companies still do today, is most people get so engrossed in their business, they can't remember where the first stepping stone was for them. They got interested in, the, in a product or a business, and they're trying to go forward with it, but they're now three, four, five, 10 years into it, and they can't remember day one what excited them. And usually for a customer, it's very simple things, and it boils down generally to they want three benefits- And you just got to back it up with three pieces of proof, one for each benefit. And they're like, that's what I want. To build a big brand, there's usually 10 benefits. And you have to then subset the audience into different avatars and go, which three benefits does that avatar want? And that's usually where a company can go from $30 million to $130 million is when you break up the avatars and quit selling to yourself and go, hey, there's some other types of people that would like this. Let's pull this apart and start speaking to them individually under a brand umbrella.
0: Yeah, that's smart. Yeah, that's that's very strategic. You're growing your your fan base, your customer base. But I think most people don't think about it that way. They think about one type of buyer.
1: So the elephant in the room there is GoPro, because that's I was an original strategist on GoPro and helped design their their ad program and we uh, we were their media company for television for the first I don't know 5 or 6 years and GoPro was a a case where you had a great product but a lot of the product was actually wrapped up in the mounts and you needed a mount for the camera but every mount predicated a different sport whether it was surfing or on your handlebars for motocross or on a ski pole for skiing and that naturally drove a whole bunch of creatives specified to a whole bunch of TV stations. And we gave the tools for the viewer to one, come enter a contest. That was the CTA. The call to action was just come win one. And then ultimately they would go online and they would see, oh, everybody and their brother's going to order this. I happen to see it on the skiing network, but now I see it's applicable to all these sports and they would just purchase because it was an affordable product. And so that that kind of idea of splitting up the the product into a whole bunch of consumer avatars was that's probably the best case case use I could ever think of that is GoPro going from six hundred thousand dollars to six hundred and sixty million in annual revenue in about five years.
0: That's unbelievable. I mean, that is a meteoric jump in revenue and and how powerful I mean, that's a, a company that is just so relevant and and totally, it just innovated and, you know, just, it, it came onto the scene and just changed up the whole game out there. It's awesome.
1: Well, and it, the product advertises itself when you use it. So you see, I mean, you still see people driving down the street with a motorcycle with that on their helmet or on a cool car. But the, to me, that's the key to any really great success story product is that your ads are not, your content, your marketing is not just grabbing consumers and selling the product. It's training them to resell the product. And that's kind of why I get involved in politics and stuff. It's how do you seed the cloud properly in your marketing that allows someone to instantly grab what you're doing and repeat it to somebody else and say, it's fantastic.
0: Yeah, I love that. Now, Totally switching topics here. We talked earlier, and I want to come full circle on this because you have a life of no debt. I don't know if times you had debt and you paid it off, like you had a mortgage and you paid it off, or if you just always knew you wanted to have no debt so that no one had their claws in you. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: I did have debt. I think when I was, when the day I left the grocery business, I had a mortgage of a couple, I don't know, four or $500,000. I probably had about $40,000 of credit card debt, and I had two vehicles. I'm sure at least one of them was on car payments. And I've been fortunate financially and picked some winners over the years. But I'll tell you that the most important thing that I ever felt emotionally was in paying off my home. And I did that through the sale of a home and some other things was getting into a situation where I have no bills per se. I have a you know, phone bill, and I have insurance, and I have the small ones but I don't even have cable television. I just have uh, Starlink to my house. So I, I have a very low overhead. What that has done for me emotionally has freed me up in the last couple of years to think deeper thoughts and help more people because I don't have the upset and the stress of that financial cloud over me all of the time there's no way that i'm going to run out of money and there's no way i'm going to not be able to pay the phone bill or the the insurance bill so it's anything a person can do to get to this condition for your emotional and thinking state it's like being a kid again you can think all the thoughts you want you can sleep in you can dream as long as you want you can get up and you can work on what you want you don't have to say yes to people that you don't want to say yes to, you never have to work for somebody who's out of line with your values or your attitudes or your morals. Um, It's freedom. It is as close as you can get to freedom as a human being. And so I'm very adamant that my kids work towards their financial freedom because it's a prison. Bills are a shackle and you don't realize it until you're out what a shackle they were. 100%.
0: 100%. I mean this is why I share the message I do of owning your time, buy your time back, buy assets that can produce income that exceeds your lifestyle costs. And you've done that very well. There's a lot of ways to do that. Uh you've got a gorgeous home, you've got a ton of land, you live where you want to live, you live life on your terms. It's very inspiring and I'm so excited to have you on the show. And I'm bummed that we're out of time, but goodness sakes, we, we've got to keep talking and I want to learn more from you. But where's the best place for people to
1: come learn more about you and, and find you? You could go to Ronnie ronnylynch.com ronnylync com, And there I have a blog that I do and books that I've written. Um, the other place I'd look to is under Alexis Skills and under um, Spotify. There's a, a podcast show that I do where I kind of give my thoughts about different topics, political, money, creativity, marketing, and it's uh, Uncle Ron. And if you're interested in kind of the, the political stat, status of the country right now and a, a thought and a vision for how to make the country endure, there's a book that I have put to voice there called Manifesto for a Modern Millennium. And I read it out. And it's 10, 12 chapters. You know, it's, a, it's a quick listen that I think would, would probably be useful to your audience in particular.
0: I love it. Well, thank you so much for the time and for all that you've shared with us here today. I love ending every podcast episode with a question to my audience, which is this. What is one step you can take today to move towards financial freedom and living life on your terms, a life you desire with intentionality, not by default, but by design? We'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who would benefit from this episode, would you mind sharing it with them right now? Who knows? Maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all resources mentioned, visit www.lifestyleinvestor.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor. This podcast is being made available exclusively to financially sophisticated, high net worth individuals capable of evaluating the merits and risks of investments. The material presented in this podcast is not intended to be investment advice or to recommend the purchase or sale of any security, nor is it intended to be legal, accounting or tax advice. You should consult with your legal, tax or financial advisor in connection with any material discussed on this podcast. Past performance is not indicative nor a guarantee of future results. Certain materials discussed on this podcast may have been prepared by third parties, which have been obtained from sources that we believe to be accurate and current. However, we make no representation or warranty as to the accuracy, completeness, or currency of such materials.